minutes and do a, just a, a brief focus on uh, just this Lent series, this Lent season that we're in. Again, this is the third week, and our focus has been loosening our grip on the created things so that we can hold tight, hold fast to the Creator. Uh, letting go of, of things that maybe we accumulate and pick up and assign value to so that we can go all in and hold fast again uh, to the Lord. Past couple months, I've been feeling pretty proud of myself. Uh, I will admit, I myself acquired something that I assigned value to. Uh, and this was something that I was sure that would make and prove to those around me that once I implemented and put this thing in play, uh, this possession that I now possessed, that everyone would say, now there is one smart fella, forward thinking, and a responsible dude. Not only that, but Michelle would love me more, my wife, and my kids, Zach and Mackenzie, would look upon me filled with awe and wonder as a dad who was teaching them the ways of life. Right? Ever have one of those things? Maybe you too. I, you were guessing, I came into possession of an oil change coupon. <laughs> before you laugh, before you scoff, this was not your run-of-the-mill $10, $8 oil change coupon. I had mailed to me a $15 off oil change coupon, right? Yeah, what would you do if you had one of those? I'm only human. So I clipped it out and I kept it in a safe place. I said, here is something that has value that will change my life. Small thing, but funny thing, and I think you can see the parallels of, of where we're going. And, and that is once we, we hold on to something and we assess a value to it, we attach that value to it, weird things happen in our heart. The temptation to prize that possession becomes pretty strong. And so I put it in a special place in my car so I wouldn't forget it. I wouldn't lose sight of it. I saw it pretty much every day and reminded myself of what a valuable treasure I had. Second thing is we begin to protect that item and we begin to change our behavior. So not only did I have it in a special place, I made sure as to never to crush it with my coffee cup or worse yet, spill a little coffee on it that it might smudge the ink and $15 off became $1 off. That would be an awful, awful thing to have happen. Well, fast forwarding the story, the day of redemption arrived. It was time for my oil change. And I took it to the appropriate spot, got my oil changed, and what did I discover? Yeah, I am that predictable. I had in my possession one expired coupon that was no longer good for $15 off. It was, uh, uh, well, I guess its value had uh, entertainment to the oil change worker who just shook his head and laughed at me and probably said to his buddies, hey, we got another one, right? Funny thing, but the point is the same, that once we grab hold of created things and attach values to them, it begins to change our heart. The temptation to prize it, the temptation to protect it, it even changes the way we interact with people. Often during the week, there's several days where uh, other pastoral staff and myself, we go out for lunch, go to Chick-fil-A or whatever, and I tend to be the driver uh, and I began to think, you know, oh, I hope they don't see my coupon. And uh, they probably think to themselves they would like to have that coupon. And so I'm going to create a distraction so I can protect that coupon even further. But 
it changes the way we interact with people when we misvalue created things. This morning, I want to turn our focus to uh, three verses in Lamentations. Lamentations 3, 22, well, it's actually two verses. Uh, but the focus is, is this, the character of God. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I love that because just as I was reading that and it just struck me as the perfect antidote to the illness of putting value on what I possess inappropriately. What does it tell me about God? It tells me that his love is everlasting. His mercies never come to an end. These are eternal statements about the character of God, eternal promises, things that are sure and that we can stand on that have no expiration date, not even a thought of anything like that. They're new every morning. They're ever renewing. And then the statement at the end, great is your faithfulness. I have to ask myself, can I stand here today and just make that statement, great is your faithfulness, God. I can, and you can too, because of who God is. That God is the one with everlasting love towards us, the one whose, mercies are, who, whose mercy is new every morning, never comes to an end, so that you and I can say, in the face of the week ahead of us, good or bad, situations that we don't even know about, good or bad, we can stand secure and stand confidently and say, great is your faithfulness because of who you are, God. So it might not be an oil change coupon that you're holding on to. It might be something else, but the principle is true. How is that changing your heart and bring you back to the reality of who God is? Everlasting love, mercies new every morning, giving us the place to stand where we can say, confidently, unshaken, without a doubt, God, great is your faithfulness. Amen. So our hope this morning, again, is letting loose of created things, putting them down so that we can grab tighter, hold fast to the wondrous, glorious God, our creator. Let's pray. God, this morning, we praise you again for your marvelous love for us, the fact that your mercies are abundant and new every morning and never come to an end. God, it's so much more than just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling that that brings us, that brings us truth, that brings us absolutes about your character and who you are. And so in my heart, uh, I say, God, great is your faithfulness. In my heart, God, I say, change it. Open my eyes to see where I've been holding on to worthless things, assigning value to things that have no value and are temporary. And may my eyes be opened and my hands reach out to hold on to what is eternal value, and that is you. And so God, change my heart, change our hearts, this church family, uh, again, to be in line, in tune with you, um, no matter what it looks like. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Adam Kuntz, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and uh, it's a joy to be able to share God's word with you this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 3. So in your Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way there. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As you're turning, it was around four years ago. I was sitting in my therapist's office. I had buzzers in my hand, one buzzing in the left, one buzzing in the right. You know, keep doing this. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking, and I was processing, and listening. And this type of therapy was a trauma-based therapy, helping me process traumatic events as they unfolded in my world in traumatic ways. I had gone through a series of sessions like this before. Each session, I was processing a lie that I had been operating out of, as if it were true. I was working hard at trying to uninstall these lies so that I can operate out of what was actually true. If you could imagine, this was deep work that needed to be done. And in this particular session, the lie is that I have to work to be loved or to earn love. Now, I won't trace back and bring you into the entirety of that therapy session any more than that, but this, this session was a defining moment in my world. I hadn't realized how many relationships and how vast that was an operating system for me, that I was operating out of lies, basing them off of truth. And the lie was that I had to work, I had to produce, I had to be perfect and do in order to obtain love in my relationships, even in my relationship with the Lord. What an exhausting way to live. And to go back to that season of my life, it seems like lifetimes ago. It was truly that though, it was exhausting. I tried my hardest to be good enough. I tried my hardest to um, produce and to be and do, and I would fail, and it would bring me to this low, low season where I had to come to grips and say, I can't measure up. I'm not enough. And I'm exhausted trying to be perfect for everyone and everything around me. And it was a loss of identity, really. Like, who is Adam if I do nothing? Am I lovable just being Adam with no accomplishments or achievements or with the list of a bunch of check marks by it? Like, who is Adam if I just literally do nothing? Now, I don't mean to start off our time together on a heavy note, but I want to bring you into a little piece of my world as we dive into the pages of Scripture to see that God's design, even back in Genesis 1, it was not supposed to be that way, that we would operate in a way that we would feel like we had to work and do and produce in order to be loved. So I want to take us back to the beginning in Genesis, that if we uninstall this lie that you have to work and produce and be perfect to obtain love from the Father, that we will, we will encounter not only freedom, but we can actually experience deep peace with God. And we'll see in just a few moments that um, in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Before we get there, though, I have a couple goals for us this morning. One, a goal is that we would see true rest through relationship with God as a good thing. And secondly, I want us to see that you and I can do this. It seems countercultural in our world to enter into rest, and it's a good thing, and we can do it. 
So Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 is where we are going to be. We're actually entering into chapter 2, so this is a big day. Here we go. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Let me pray with us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've laid the very foundations of our world, God, and how we have a part to play in that. And I pray, God, that you would uncover the truths of Scripture and press them deeply into our hearts. God, that we would see you more clearly, that we would see Jesus more clearly as a result of our time together. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We have a pretty straightforward passage today, and so I want to structure our time together in similar fashion. I want to handle it straightforward. I want to be practical. I want to help us actually have some handles to walk away with when it comes to this idea of Sabbath rest. So if we're going to put like a form to it or a structure, the way we're going to look at this this morning is that we're going to look at the text, see what the text has to say, and then we're going to consider what does the Sabbath rest teach us about God? And so we're going to look at some assurances that we have whenever it comes to the things of God. We're going to look at some actual practices as it relates to Sabbath rest. Then we'll look at some tips for those that desire to make moves for this being a part of your weekly rhythm. And then we'll close our time together gazing at Jesus. And so uh, main idea today, the one point that we're just going to keep circling and orbiting around and being our driving force today is that God invites creation into the rhythms of joyful rest. God invites creation to share in the rhythm of joyful rest. And so like I said, I want to handle this morning straightforward and practical. I want us to see that God inviting his creation to share in the rhythm of joyful rest is a good thing and that you and I can enjoy and engage with this. See, the reality is you don't need me to tell you that we all are overworked, we're overcommitted, we're overtired, we're overbusy, and frankly, it leads us to being over it. I considered bringing statistics and facts about how tired and stressed we are, but I thought, we already know this. We have a firm grasp that we are spread thin, more than we would care to admit. We unfortunately have some skin in the game when it comes to hitting the bed at night, and we are just in need of rest. But we are not just in need of a good night's sleep, but deep spiritual rest. So this passage is one that's going to confront us, our Western ideas and practices, in a number of ways. But I think that this is a confrontation that we're all screaming from the inside out, and we just don't know how to pump the brakes. We don't know how to say no in a world that applauds hustle. But what we see in the creation account, God has a plan and a rhythm that he set into motion, and it's a good thing, and you and I can play a part in that. So at this point in the passage, God has completed his work, and God is done. We have an obvious tempo change from chapter one. We've read through chapter one a number of times through the weeks, and you've taken note probably that Genesis 1 has a particular style, how it reads, that there's a a structure and tempo to it, and it becomes predictable to follow. 
usually goes something like this, that then God said, it's followed by it was so, it was good, followed by evening and then morning, the blank number day. We don't see this on day seven. I want to take a look at the passage again. I want you to take note of how day seven is different than days one through six. Verse one, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. God starts out creating the heavens and the earth. Earth was formless and empty, and now it's formed and filled. And God rested. He ceased. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease, cease working, to rest. And that word is related to the Hebrew word for seven. And we even see Jesus, how he constructed his own use and practice of Sabbath based off this rhythm set before us by God. So there's a couple different ways that day seven is different than days one through six. I want to bring those to light real fast. That One is that we even see the literary form of chapter 1 is different than verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. The style is different. There's that rhythm of God said, it was so, it was good, evening came, then morning, the blank day. It's not there in day 7. Next is that this day didn't have an end to it. It was like it was an ongoing rest in day 7. It's without end. Third, God blesses this day. We don't see that in the other days of creation, just this one, day seven. In blessing the seventh day, God made it a blessing to enjoy. And then lastly, this day is different because God declares it holy. Why? Because on it, God rested from all his work of creation. He set this day apart for his own special purposes. And this day in creation is what creation has been leading up to, and The beauty of the seventh day is that it wasn't leading up to anything that we would have it lead up to. I mean, we would think of the pinnacle of creation would, for us, would be like power and position and status, but for God, it was rest and enjoyment and satisfaction from the work that he had done. The intriguing thing about Sabbath as it relates to this passage, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, is that the text doesn't say outright Sabbath. It's not there in plain sight, but we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we see in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the Ten Commandments point back to the very fabric of creation that's been laid before us. And so I'm going to read Exodus 20, 8 through 11, where it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates, don't miss this, for the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Did you see how in the Ten Commandments... They're pointing back to the very creation account that for God made the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, he he rested and he blessed it and declared it holy. 
I mean, this commandment is different than all the other commandments. If you think of the Ten Commandments, this is 37% of the Ten Commandments is just this one. This is the only commandment with a why attached to it. We don't get whys in all the others. Do not murder. It's kind of bad. That'd be the why. You know, we don't get a why in do not murder. We don't get a why in why you shouldn't steal. We don't get a why on why you shouldn't have any other gods before him. You get the idea. But remember the Sabbath day. Why? To keep it holy. And yet we look at the Ten Commandments and we kind of look at them more casually as the Nine Commandments. We look over Sabbath so casually because our culture is so counter to observance of a blessed and holy day. And our personal relationship with Sabbath, just in this room, is probably a wide variety Some of us are probably very familiar with Sabbath. You may have grew up with parents who observed Sabbath, and maybe they did so rigidly. And so you as a kid, it meant a day of boring sauce for you, where it was a day of drudgery more than a day of delight. Like your parents saw fit to take a nap, and you were just like in in your room doing nothing, and you couldn't do anything. And so it kind of shaped you, and it wasn't bad that your parents took a nap, but for you it shaped and kind of carried over some hostile feelings towards Sabbath. That maybe for you it seemed like a day of restriction rather than a day of enjoyment and play. Some of us maybe are more distantly familiar with Sabbath. Maybe it was on the wall at your house growing up of the Ten Commandments and it was on a wooden tablet and it had a brass plate on it and it was written in old English font and right next to your mom's live, laugh, love sign. You know, and then you, you see it on the wall, but it's like, ah, it's not one of those things you really like do, but we know it's important. You knew about it. There was a bunch of other commandments, though, to observe. And this day is anything but a day of restriction. It's anything but a day of just nothingness and boring, because this is something that we get to take part in and to enjoy and delight in God's creation and his presence among us. Sabbath, as we just read in the creation account, it's not a tacked on addition. Like God saw the creation account, like, you know what, after kind of going back to the drawing board, we had a meeting, talked about a few things, we probably should implement a day of rest. Like it wasn't, that was part of the plan all along, that God would create and then he would cease and he would enjoy and be satisfied in the work that he had done, not having to edit or tweak anything. So I kind of want to revisit the days of creation. They're going to be on the screen. We see on days one through three that God forms, he forms, he forms light from dark, sea from sky, land from sea and vegetation. And then on days four through six, God fills lights in the sky, creatures in the air and sea. We see land animals, and then we see what? Humanity. This is an intriguing thought. What, just consider, what if humanity was maybe put there on day two? And then they experienced a few days, maybe they did a few things, felt good with the things God's doing, and then they entered God's rest. Maybe they would think, you know, I kind of did a few things. This is kind of nice, kind of needed a little bit of a break. This isn't what happened. God created humanity, and having done nothing to earn it, you get ushered 
into God's rest. You don't have to do a single thing. I mean, what a gift from God that he would create humanity and then very next, hey, we're gonna rest. You know, us in our minds, we'd be like, rest from what? I haven't done anything. Well, surely I, got, I can like do something, maybe earn my keep a little bit, but like God's like, I'm, I create you and I'm gonna delight in you having done nothing. What a gift of God that he would do that. And then it begs the question, like, why did God rest? We know that God is uncreated. He's always existed, and he exists outside of time, and he's, he's fully present. He's everywhere, always. And he's fully powerful, and even in the creation account, it didn't drain a single ounce of his power. He doesn't need to recharge like we do. So why did God rest? God chose to stop creating and enjoy his completed and satisfied, very good work. He finished. In art class in high school, my teacher would kind of stroll around the room and she'd randomly pick up your board and she'd put it across the room and then she'd walk to the other side of the room and then she'd turn around for her first initial response to see if anything's off. Then you'd go back and hear all the tweaks that she wants you to make. God doesn't hold up his creation account and look back and say, well, that was kind of weird. That shadow's off. Proportions are a little weird. You know, God created. Zero edits need be made because it was very, very good. So God didn't rest because he was drained in power. He didn't rest because, ah, there's kind of like a better edit to add on. He declared it good indeed. His rest is to enjoy the end of creating. And we think rest, we think recover. God thinks rest, he thinks enjoyment. Alan Fadling in his book, The Unhurried Life, says that Sabbath day is not a day measured out of productivity, but measured by relationship and enjoyment. That relationship piece brings us to what we see. Day six, humanity is brought in and God delights in his creation and that includes humanity and he ushers us into his rest without having have done nothing to have earned it. Ancient practice would view the start of the day very different from us, very opposite actually. Our day starts at sunrise. Hebrew mindset was the day started at sunset. Western practice is that we fall into our beds after a horrendous day in the office, needing to fall into rest from the day's work, only to do it again tomorrow. We work hard now so that we can rest later. The opposite is what we see in observance in Sabbath. That ancient practice would start Sabbath at sundown. They would go to bed Sabbathing. And we even see this in Genesis chapter one, the literary form. We've already talked about it, that there was this predictable flow. And it would say, evening came and then morning the fifth day. Why does it start with evening? That just seems backwards to us, that it should say morning came and then evening the fifth day, but it doesn't say that. It says evening came, then morning the fifth day, that we would enter into rest, sabbathing, that we go to sleep having done nothing to keep the world spinning. 
We'll talk more about this in a few minutes, but I want to transition to the practical side of things. What can we do? What does Sabbath show us about God? So I have some assurances that this can show us but what, how it comes to, to God. The first is that Sabbath rest is an invitation to trust in the sovereignty of God. It's an invitation to step away from your work. Allow God to be God and rest fully in God. This is an invitation to see that work is not sovereign, God is. God in the creation account sets into motion the separation from light and darkness and sea and land and sun and moon and so on, and he doesn't have to go back to the drawing board to finalize it. It's set into motion and it's good, and if we're honest, this is hard for us to grapple with. It trips us up more than we care to admit because there's a desire in so many of us that my work is what I do. It's who I am. I want to have meaning. I want to have purpose. And it's not bad to have motivation. It's not bad to have drivenness and ambition. But Sabbath rest confronts us in the idea that our identity is wrapped up in what we do and what we accomplish. When we start to believe the lie that you must work to earn love and to be loved, who are you on the day of rest? Put it another way, if I am what I do, who am I on Sabbath? This practice of Sabbath allows us to trust that God sustains his creation and he's good at it. You can rest knowing that in your weary, tired heart, you can rest knowing that God is sovereign. And that is an invitation for us to trust in his sovereignty. Next, Sabbath rest acknowledges that God is unrivaled. God is the sole creator and he himself is uncreated and he doesn't have an origin story. The sun and moon are his creation, not his rival's. Time is thought up, initiated, and put in place and set in motion by God. And life is formed by the very breath of God. And no person, place, or thing can stand toe-to-toe against an uncreated, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present God. He is unmatched in every way. And Sabbath is a gift because it positions us rightly. Now, we are not God. He is God, and he is unmatched. John Mark Comer says this simply yet profoundly, and I I took it as a point. He says that Sabbath is a way of saying enough. We have this black hole in our hearts named desire, and it never really seems to be satisfied. God did not create in order to fill a void in his heart. He didn't create because he was longing and waiting. He was lonely, and so he created humanity and and the earth, and that was not to fill a void in God's heart. We have this longing in our hearts, and the longing is to be resolved, and so what we do with this desire is that we look left and right and all around looking for something to fill a God-sized hole in our heart. Nothing but God can fill a God-sized hole in our heart. Dallas Willard helps us understand desire when he says this. He says, desire is infinite, 
partly because we were made by God, made for God, and made to need God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all of our needs. We are only at home in God. And when we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly bring destruction. Sabbath says to our desires, that's enough. This far and no further. Consume and take in what God has created and delight in his creation. Partake and enjoy all that God has done. Slow down and enjoy the ordinary goodness that God can offer. A meal shared with friends. Uninterrupted time with family. Unhurried time outside. Getting lost in a book. Take the bath you've dreamed of. Play catch with your son. Call your friend that moved out of state. Sit on the porch with an afternoon tea. Give yourself permission to tell the black hole in your heart that screams for attention, I will get to you on Monday. I briefly touched on some practices there, but I want to give us some actual handles as it relates to implementing Sabbath rest into your rhythms. The first practice is simply choose a day to Sabbath. For me, if you could imagine, I'm a little busy on Sundays. It's a little hard to Sabbath on a day like today for me. So our family chooses to set aside Friday night at dinner to Saturday at dinner. The rhythm is the same. Six days of work, one day of rest. If your normal Sabbath is a Sunday and you see there's a scheduling conflict, adjust. Six days of work, one day of rest. The day of the week is not nearly as important as the heart of the practice. Choose a day, adjust as you go. Have an entrance into Sabbath. Cross the finish line of the work week and enter into enjoying the presence of God in your life. Ancient practice would have a candle lit for the entirety of the day because the command is to remember the Sabbath. Having a candle lit would be a helpful reminder that today is Sabbath. We have three candles on a candle stand, whatever that is, and uh, we have three candles and three girls that are eager to light each candle, and so we have three candles with three different meanings to help us remember Sabbath. One candle is the candle that represents cease, to stop and recognize God's presence. The next candle is to celebrate. This is the candle all the girls want to light, and there's tears if we don't but the celebrate candle, that we celebrate Jesus is the reason we can find rest in God. His life, death, resurrection gives us relationship with God, and we want to celebrate. And last, the candle is contemplate. Consider and think about how good God is, that he would allow rest in our world. Now, did these candles always represent those things? Nope. Did they all always start with C? Nope. Two of them did, one didn't, felt weird, we adjusted it, found a word that works. But for our family, we more than doing the candles, we do them periodically, but 
We also have a, a Sabbath delight playlist that we play throughout the house on Sabbath, and it helps us to cease. It helps us to celebrate, and it helps us to contemplate. So I have a playlist of Sabbath delight that helps us to be our candle for us, that helps us remember to keep the Sabbath and that it's holy. We'll read a verse or a passage to help us focus our hearts in a particular direction for that Sabbath, and we'll check in periodically with each other and the kids to see how God has been showing himself to each other. Next is that we will go to bed Sabbathing. Allow God to sustain his creation at the start of your Sabbath, having done nothing to keep the world spinning. Eugene Peterson has a quote that gives valuable insight as to why Sabbath from sundown to sundown is practiced. He says this, that the Hebrew evening-morning sequence conditions us to rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. We wake into a world we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. Evening, God begins without our help. Morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work he initiated. See, God may have ceased from creating, but he is still actively at work, and he is the one that does not need rest. I am the one who runs on fumes faster than I care to admit. Why? Because I am not God. I am hardwired to run off of rest. Next, be digitally absent so you could be physically present. When it's time to cease, it's time to unplug yourself from your digital world and your digital reputation that you try to maintain and keep track of. Take off the watch, put away the device so that you could be present, not only to the people in your life, but to the Lord and his presence among you. And if I'm honest, if there is one thing that will sabotage your Sabbath, it is your phone. And if I were to put a reason behind it, it's because your phone is not just a phone. There is an app on it called phone. There are other things too that you use a lot more than the phone app. You are the product and you are put to the test. When your device is in front of you, you are one banner notification away from getting sabotaged. And I can feel the resistance. I get it. We're all at war with this because this is, we have this like, we're, we're being pulled from two different, two different places. Like, I want to be off the grid. It sounds amazing. What if something happens to the people I love? You know, like I get it. And I'm not telling you to take a hammer to your phone, but I am saying, turn your phone into a phone for Sabbath. Let it be a phone. The end. Turn off the red number notifications. Let it be on silent. Disable your notifications. Delete the apps that you find yourself mindlessly numbing out on. There are six days for social media in Amazon. Put your phone to rest. Lastly, use questions to help you engage and enjoy God's presence. Tim gave me a question a few years ago that kind of helped me structure this and one question was what was what would be one thing that would give you life today another question is the thing you're doing is it restful and is it worship let these questions help you decide what you partake in 
and delight in God and his creation. For some of us, yard work is a great way to enjoy God. And for others, they're like, don't you dare make me do yard work on Sabbath. That is not enjoyment. I do not worship. It is not restful. You know, it's different for all of us that God wired us in such a way that there are ways that we can enjoy him and it doesn't have to be a day of nothingness, but it can be a day of enjoyment and delighting in God and his goodness and presence in our life. If you have a hobby, it's a great way to enjoy the Lord. You may have to like uninstall some barriers that you've put up that you can't have fun or play during Sabbath, but this is the time to enjoy it. Allow the praise though to not get stuck on the hobby, but push through the activity to the creator and enjoy him. I want to be as realistic as possible with you and the practical ways are good, but I want to give you an inside peek into the four walls of the Coons house. Friday afternoon, we're gearing up for Sabbath. And I always want to be careful when I share stories about my children. They're not sermon prep material, right? They're humans. So I don't want to belittle or laugh at, but this is where we're all at in this. And so I want to give you a realistic picture that Sabbath in our house is not executed flawlessly. Um, we all find ourselves at different places as we come together to enter into Sabbath, but I want to give you a realistic glimpse inside our house. So if you can imagine Friday afternoon, we know Sabbath is coming. I have a calendar every Friday night that reminds me that Sabbath is coming and we get the house ready so that we have the best chance possible to enjoy a day of rest. And so Kendra and I are scurrying around the house, putting things away, mopping, sweeping. We always love entering into Sabbath with an empty dishwasher because we have lots of kids in our house and they use lots of plates and cups and it is a disaster if we don't get on top of this. So we start out Sabbath with an empty dishwasher. We are working hard so that we can enter in to rest. So we do the things that we don't want to do. We, we take out the trash. We go to the grocery store so we don't have to do any of those things so that we can just have a day of rest. We do what we try to get done. Do we get everything done on the list? Nope, not a chance. Two or three weeks ago, Kendra so lovingly and graciously walks into the living room during Sabbath to see me, Pastor Adam, mopping the floor. She goes, you're mopping? She knew the answer. She saw with her eyes, I was mopping. You know, you're mopping? I said, uh, yeah, yeah, guess I am. Hmm. And she walks out of the room. And it was like this realization that like I started, you know, conjuring up all these excuses. You know, I've been staring at these muddy paw prints for a while now. And I'm just kind of tired of like, I just want to have a clean house. Is that too much to ask, you know? And, and I started like getting these silly excuses. And it was like, I had six days for that. Six days of work. One day of rest. So it's Friday afternoon. We're mad dashing to get the place where we can rest. And it's almost dinner time, and it's the start of Sabbath. And Sabbath in the Coons house, if you want to know what it smells like, it smells like chicken nuggets and popcorn. That's what it smells like. We start Sabbath with a family movie night. So we always have chicken nuggets, some form of a potato, and veggies. And there's always popcorn during the movie. 
So our house is smelling like nuggets and fries. We plate up the dishes. The girls are anxiously waiting our arrival with the food so that we can pick a movie, which is a whole other thing in and of itself. So we lay the plates on the floor in front of them. I stand in front of them, in front of the TV with my Bible open, and I say, okay, girls, it's time to start Sabbath. And there's a collective, oh, which I, listen. All right, we have, this three minutes is not going to kill you. You watch some weird shows that are longer than three minutes about Australian dogs and such. And so here we are. I just want to have a chat real fast about Jesus. Now, Psalms 37.4 says a delight in the Lord. You know, you try to reel it in and it's like, you know, you take delight in the Lord. It gives you the desires of your heart. And so, man, we have some roundabout like, you should focus here. Hey, just two more minutes of your time, all right? Just delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Girls, what do you think that means? And so we talked about it for a few minutes. And we're like, hey, for Sabbath, let's think about the ways that God has been good to us. Okay, can we do that? Let's think about the ways God has been good to us. And so we, we pray and we devour those nuggets. And 30 minutes later, we finally land on a movie. We enjoy the movie. We go to bed resting. We wake up, we just enjoy each other's company, we don't wake each other up, we just have a loungy day, sometimes we make pancakes, but the thing is always the same, that I always leave my watch off, my phone stays plugged in and put away, I'm not perfect at it, but my social media apps do get deleted, and if I remember I put my phone on grayscale to remember that my life now is way more vibrant than my digital life. So we go on walks. Kendra and I ask each other, what's one thing that you could do that would give you life today? And sometimes that involves something that we both do together. And sometimes that involves an individual thing that, man, I really would just love to go to a coffee shop and read for an hour. So we talk about what would be one thing that would give you life today? Like I said, we go on walks and we want, we want Sabbath to be enjoyable for our kids too. And so on our walks, we'll call our friends' kids as we walk by their house and say, hey, we're on a walk. Can we take your kids on a walk with our kids? And we want our, our girls to have an amazing time during Sabbath too, that they can enjoy and see God's goodness in their life. When the girls go to bed, we call friends sometimes to come over for game night. And this specific Sabbath that I'm kind of like looking back on and referring to, we were considering how God has been good to us that day. Well, it's Saturday, and we go to a birthday party at a place that all kids love. And one child was having a harder time engaging with the other kids. She was feeling like unusually left out, and she was sad. She wanted to have a play date with a friend, and because we were going to this birthday party, she couldn't have the play date. Well, wouldn't you know it that this friend that she wanted to hang out with was also at this place, and she comes out of the corner and just hugs our daughter, so she's off to the races and having a great time finally with this friend. So we enjoy the party. We get into the van and Kendra says, Kennedy, wasn't that so good of God to give you a friend knowing your heart was sad? You needed a friend. It was like in that moment, it was like such a beautiful reminder that we help each other enter into the Sabbath rest. Like, wasn't it so good of God that he would provide a friend knowing your heart was sad. So we get home and we enjoy a few more hours of play. 
and relaxing and it brings us to dinner time. We check in, how did you see God be good to you today? How was God good to you today? Again, our execution of this is far from perfect. It's crazy sometimes. I lose my cool sometimes. But God is so good that he would invite us into his rest. And that particular day, Kendra and I look at each other at the end of the day. We're like, hey, you didn't get to do that thing that brought you life today. And I was like, yeah, you didn't either. But it was a good day. Again, we don't get it right a lot of the time, but God has been kind to us when we set aside time to enter into his rest and enjoy his goodness and his presence in our life. Some tips for those that are kind of wanting to start implementing some of this stuff. One of the front runners for me years ago was John Mark Comer when I started to implement Sabbath into my daily rhythms. And there's a host of other pastors and authors out there. Um, John Mark Comer's been specifically formative for me, helping build this into a rhythm. And so he's got a book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I have all my resources here if you want to look at them. But he's got another small resource. If you are wanting to engage in Sabbath in a rhythm of your life, he's got five tips. And I thought they were so, so good. And I took them. They are going to be here for you. And so I didn't try to recreate the wheel in any of this. So I have some tips for you found in this Sabbath practice book. And so one tip that he has, if you want to start this, be a rhythm of your life, he says, start small. Don't start where you want to be. Just start where you are. Maybe 24 hours seems like a lot, seems daunting. Start small. Be gentle on yourself as you implement a new rhythm. Next, think subtraction, not addition. Sometimes we are trying to just tack on something else to an already overloaded calendar. What can you say no to so that you can say yes to this? But don't try to cram it in. Next, you get out what you put in. The more fully you give yourself to this, the more life-changing it will be. The more you casually dabble with it, the more shortcuts you'll likely take. Remember the J-curve you're probably gonna see a dip before it gets better. It may feel awkward, discombobulating, or difficult. Keep with it though, and have grace for yourself as you're entering into new rhythms. And lastly, there is no formation without repetition. It's a slow, deep, hard work. And it's to put this practice into place, and it takes, honestly, years more than weeks to fine-tune it. So as we look into this, I want to just take a moment to look upon Jesus. Spiritual formations are tricky to talk about. We've all engaged in formations, and over time, they kind of lost heart in the middle of the practice, like leading to legalism or empty ritual. It was no different in Jesus' day. The Pharisees knew what God's command was, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? And they would hold to that in a way that placed a bunch of surrounding things to do and not do, and held it in a way that took the transformation of the heart out of the equation. What Jesus did and accomplished for us on behalf of sinners is that Jesus takes away all that extra baggage of all the other things of this Pharisaical mindset, and he takes us back to day seven. 
delighting in God and his presence and his power and his goodness with us and that we get to play a part in that and we get to participate in Sabbath rest. We get to joyfully enter into his rest. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture came to mind a lot in this passage. It's a moment in Matthew's gospel where we see and hear from Jesus and Jesus offers us not only a picture of his heart, but he offers us a promise and it's a promise of rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, it says, Jesus is talking and he says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you weary, heavy-hearted, gassed, frustrated, spinning your wheels and yet going nowhere? That's exactly who Jesus was talking to, to come to him. And in so doing, Jesus offers us rest, the same invitation that God offers us day seven, that having done nothing to earn it day six, you can walk and usher into God's rest. And Jesus offers us that same rest here in Matthew 11. What are you carrying that you can offload onto the shoulders of our Savior? His invitation to rest is not because you are in trouble. It's not to, to shame you. It's because you were not made to carry that kind of weight. Jesus is willing to carry the burden that you and I are at wit's end about. Take up his yoke. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And the promise for us is that he offers us rest. So to bring us to a question that I wrestled with and had to uninstall, who am I? On Sabbath, loved. You were loved. This rest is unlike any rest we could ever conjure up or manufacture. That this rest is an act of God's immeasurable grace and kindness to us through Jesus Christ. And to put it bluntly and simply, there is no rest apart from Jesus Christ. Our hearts, like I mentioned, have this black hole and our hearts think that they will finally find rest in a person, a place, a thing, a circumstance, and there is no rest apart from Jesus. Our hearts will not find rest until they find rest in God. He is the one who created the rhythms of the heavens and the earth and rest is the first initiation put in place for us to enjoy having done nothing to earn or attain it. So for brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a lot here to implement or take hold of. But for the person who doesn't know Jesus personally through relationship with God, your heart is trying to find peace in a world of chaos and brokenness, and you won't find it outside of a perfect, obedient, risen Christ. He is the Prince of Peace, and you too can have peace with God, relationship with God, and you get to enjoy him. Sabbath and its practices and implementations are well and good. They will be beneficial to you, but apart from Christ, it will not save you. Salvation is only through Christ, and he will offer you that kind of rest. But there's one thing that you have to do. Come to him. 
The offer is on the table from Jesus in Matthew 11 to come to me. You're weary and burdened. I will give you rest. There is no rest outside of God. Amen? Let's stand and worship in response.